to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we are going to be in the last uh, six or seven verses of chapter 14, verses 34 through 40. Just a quick reminder before we get started so everybody knows, there is no service next Sunday. Everybody got that? I don't know, I guess they'll announce that today. So there is no service next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, January 1st, there's no Bible study. So you got two weeks off, or I got two weeks off. How about that? Um, so no, no Bible study or church next Sunday. And then the following Sunday's New Year's, there's no Bible study, but there is church. So good luck keeping all that, all that straight, all right? All right, so First uh, Corinthians 14, 34 through 40. So the title of our lesson this morning is, You Want Me to Be Quiet. You Want Me to Be Quiet. All right, let's turn and, and read our verses. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 40. It says this, The women should keep silent in the churches. Shall we pray right now? <laughs> the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, then he is not recognized. So, my brothers and sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Now... Okay, so we, we know going in today is a difficult passage of, of Scripture, right? Especially for a modern, a quote-unquote modern society uh, like ours. And, and the question that we really want to answer is this. Is Paul saying that women can't speak at all in church? They can't teach, they can't preach, they can't sing, they can't prophesy, they can't pray. Is that what he's, is that what he's saying? That, that, that it is shameful for women to speak, that they should stay absolutely silent in church. Is that, what he's, is that what he's saying? Now, the passage is difficult for a couple of reasons. First of all, it, it's inherently difficult because it was written 2,000 years ago, and it was written in a culture that's completely different from ours, right? I mean, it was a completely different culture. Women, uh, women basically at that time were, were more or less treated as the property of their, of their husbands. They were very, for the most part, uneducated. They had very little experience in public assemblies or, or anything like that. They were supposed to stay home, and, and the men took care of everything uh, else. It was a completely different culture than, than we are. So that makes it difficult in itself. However, and this is what I want us to really see this morning, what really makes it difficult for, for most people in the church today is when we try and understand this scripture outside of the big picture. Okay, I was thinking this week, how many of y'all have seen things like this? You know, it's one of those pictures where it's a lot of little dots and stuff, and, and they tell you that if you get close enough or you unfocus your eyes, you can see the big pictures. Everybody know what I'm talking about there? It's, now, I, I was one of those. I never did see it. I, I never could see it. People would say, you know, cross your eyes, close one eye, get closer. I just never could see it. But the fact is, is, if you just look at those individual dots, 
they don't mean much unless you step back and you look at the big picture. Well, that's what we want to do this morning. Before we get to today's passage, because I don't think you can understand that passage without seeing the big picture. So that's what we want to do first. We want to kind of step back and look at the big picture, specifically with the regard, regarding the role of women and the role of men and what the Bible clearly teaches uh, about those roles. And so I want to make sure, again, before we get to that passage, that you and I can see the big picture. So let's start in Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. Now here Paul says something that is really astounding. He says this, verses 31 through 33. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, by the way, he is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Genesis 2.24. Okay, so he quotes that scripture, and then Paul says this. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, at what Paul is saying is this. At the beginning of creation, God created a man and he created a woman and he joined them together in marriage. And, and marriage had a meaning at that time. There was a, mer- a meaning or a purpose behind marriage that wouldn't be revealed for thousands of years. See, the purpose of marriage wasn't just procreation. If, if, if God wanted just to, us to just procreate and, and, and inhabit the earth, we could have been like animals. Right? You, you could have just, you know, we could have had a man with multiple women, women with multiple men. They could have just filled the earth and been done with it. But that's not what he said. He said, a man and a woman shall come together and become as one flesh. So God gave marriage a meaning at the very beginning of time. But that meaning was to stay a mystery for literally thousands of years. And then Paul pens a letter to the Ephesians. Again, thousands of years later, he pens a letter to the Ephesians and he says, this marriage, this thing God created is a mystery, but he says, now I'm going to reveal the mystery to you. I'm going to reveal to you what marriage is all about. And Paul says the mystery is this. A husband and wife in their marriage are meant by God to be a living image or a living representation or a living drama of the relationship between Christ and His church. Okay, let me say that again. This is the big picture. He said when a husband and a wife come together and they're married, he says their marriage, and he said this is, this is a mystery, but he says the meaning of marriage is profound. It, it's more than just a man and a woman keeping each other company. It's more than just a man and a woman being over the head of a family. It's more than just a, a, a man and woman procreating and filling the earth. He says uh, this marriage represents the relationship between Christ and the church. In other words, if you're married, your marriage is a living drama, is a living image, is a living picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the and the church. You see, when, when God created man and woman and He made us the way we are with all of our differences, he, he did it so that we would be suited for this thing called marriage, that we would complement one another. And listen, here is an absolutely crucial point. Are men and women different? Absolutely. But here's what I want you to see. God made us that way before sin came into the world. 
In other words, our differences are not the result of the fall. Our differences are not the result of sin, of a sin nature. That's, go back and read it. It's in Genesis 2 that he institutes marriage. But it's not till later in Genesis 3 and 4 that sin comes into the world. So our differences are not a result of sin. They're a result of God's original design. You see, before sin entered the world, God made Adam a certain way. He fitted him to be a leader. He fitted him for this servant leadership, okay, to be, to be the head of his home. And he also, before sin entered the world, he did the same thing for Eve. He made her a certain way. He gave her certain attributes to complement her husband, to be a partner and a helpmate for him. You see, both are made in the image of God. Both are equal in value. They're equal in nature, okay? But the fact is they're different according to God's plan or God's design. That was the originally the way it was supposed to be. You see, the pattern was absolutely beautiful. They respected each other. They loved one another. They enjoyed one another. They complimented one another. It was absolutely perfect. But then sin comes into the world. Now, we don't know many details about the relationship between Adam and Eve in the garden. We're not given a lot of details on that. But one thing we know is that God looked at it and said it's what? It's good. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. When God does something, He does it absolutely perfectly. So He made us different so that we complement one another in this, thing called, in this thing called marriage. And so we know it would have been perfect. But after the fall, God places a curse on the man and the woman. Let's read that in Genesis 3.16. He says this, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now watch what he says right here. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, a lot of people have trouble with that passage. That's a... That's old-timey language right there. This is a, it's, a, it's an odd thing to decipher, that your desire shall be for your husband. And what we do know is this has nothing to do with physical desire or anything and like that. And in fact, for us to tell what that means, we have to go to the story of, of Cain and Abel. Now, everybody remember the story of Cain and Abel, right? So uh, Adam and Eve have, have two sons, Cain and Abel. Uh, one of them is a, a keeper of sheep and animals. The other one's a farmer of fruits and vegetables. And so they both bring a sacrifice to God. And Cain brings the fruits and vegetables or whatever he brings, and, and, and Abel brings an animal sacrifice. And the Bible says that God accepted Abel's animal sacrifice, but he didn't like the fruits and stuff, right? And Cain got angry. He got, he got mad about that. And so the Lord said to him in Genesis 4, he said this, So the Lord said to Cain, now watch what he says, Why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, watch what he says, Sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now remember what he said to the woman? Your desire shall be for your husband. And he tells Cain, Sin's desire is for you. Now, what does he mean when he says sin's desire is for you? Anybody? He's saying that sin, what he's saying is sin wants to dominate you. Sin wants to control you. Sin wants to to rule you. 
right? Well, see, that's the exact same language that he used earlier about the woman when he says, your desire shall be for your husband. What he's saying is he's taking the woman, he's saying your desire will be to dominate your husband. Your desire will be to control your husband. Your desire will be to, to rule over your husband. See, before the fall, the woman is fitted and made a certain way to complement and, and, and submit and be that, that perfect helpmate. And sin comes in, and what happens, it says, God says, you're going to rebel against that role, and you're going to turn around and try to dominate your husband, and you're going to try to control uh, your husband. And by the way, in fact, Genesis uh, 3.16, the New Living Translation translates it exactly perfect. It says this, Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will, he will rule over you. And by the way, he shall rule over you. That's part of the curse as well. God never intended for a man to rule or dominate or control a woman. He never intended that way. In Ephesians 5, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You are to be a, a leader but a servant leader a, 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 that's willing to sacrifice and give yourself, not a dominator, not a controller. That, that's part of the curses as well, okay? And so what's happened over time, instead of men being these servant leaderships, leading by example, what men have done is they've either become too passive and gave up leadership altogether, or they've become too harsh and too dominating, or some other form or distortion of what God originally intended. So what we find ourselves today in a society is we find ourselves as men and women naturally rebelling against our God-ordained roles because of our sin nature. And so begins, in Genesis 4, begins the assault on marriage. And by the way, go back and read Genesis. Before you get out of the book of Genesis, you got polygamy, you got adultery, you got homosexuality, you got fornication, and you got incest. You're not even out of Genesis. You don't even get out of Genesis and you've already got all that in the world because sin totally corrupts what God has created and intended. You see, God designed marriage to be the very best that life has to, has to offer, but sin has warped and perverted those originally God-designed roles, and now you have relationships where men and women are trying to dominate one another and control one another and get their own, and get their own way. And we wonder why, why it doesn't work. So what you need to see in Ephesians 5, when Paul comes back and says, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. He's not trying to do away with what God originally designed. He's trying to restore it. He's trying to put it back into godly marriages. He's trying to put it back into the church, what God originally intended at creation. And that is true biblical headship and true biblical submission. Now, what do I mean by those two terms, headship and, and, and submission? Headship is the dividing of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. And submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. This is what God originally designed and created. In other words... Listen to me closely. The husband is to lead like Christ, and the wife is to respond like the bride of Christ. 
Remember what Paul said, the mystery is profound, but he says this is the mystery, that your marriage is a living representation of the relationship between Jesus and the church. So in my marriage, I'm supposed to play the part of Jesus. I'm supposed to represent Jesus. Am I, am I, do I have a headship like Jesus? Am I giving myself like Jesus? Am I serving like Jesus? Everybody with me? He says that's what you're doing. You're putting on display for the world what the relationship is between... It's way more than a physical relationship. It's way more than a family. It's way more than any of that. What you're doing has profound meaning and purpose. And you see, when we, when we do that, when the husband is leading like Jesus and the wife is submitting like the bride of Christ, there is a harmony there. There is a peace there. There is a contentment there, a satisfaction that's far beyond any model that this world could ever, could ever, come, could ever come up with. So here's the big picture. We got a tough scripture today to get to. But you can't understand today's scripture without understanding the big picture. And here's the big picture. You see, when you come to the New Testament and you come to a scripture that, that defines the role of a woman, whether it's in life, whether it's in marriage, or whether it's in the church, you've got to understand that this picture of, of a woman's role is, is not being given to us by, by Paul's sinful pride. Well, you know, some people say, well, Paul was a man and that was his view. No, that's not where it comes from. Other people say, well, it was just cultural back then. Well, there are things that are cultural, but you can't blame it all on cultural. See, you have to go back to God's original design and plan. That's what New Testament Scripture is rooted in. That's what Paul is calling us back to. Don't, he's saying, don't let culture take you in an opposite direction. I'm calling you back to God's original design and original plan. So what we're going to do, what's the old saying? If you're in for a penny, you might as well get in for a pound, right? So we might, if, we, if we're going to go with this scripture, we might as well deal with all of them. So let's, let's get in front of a few of these very unpopular verses. And what we want to do is look at them in the big picture. Okay, Don't just look at it individually and say, man, I, I just don't agree with that. Step back and see the big picture that, that, that once again Paul is calling us to God's original design. Let's go to 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. It says this, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, let me show you something in that scripture. Paul is going to say something that's very unpopular. Okay? But I want you to look at that last sentence. I want you to look at his reasoning for what he says. That word for means because. He says, I'm saying all this because, what does he say? Adam was formed first, then Eve. You see, his reasoning goes back to what? Creation. It goes back to the beginning. It's not cultural. It's not rooted in, in, in his own sinful pride. He's saying, this is why I'm calling you to this, because of the big picture because God designed it that way at the beginning. Now, I want to look at a few words in there. The first word I want to look at is silence. What, what, what does Paul mean? Let a woman learn in silence. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that she can't say a single word? Is that what he's saying? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses there is hesuchia. Now, remember, 
Greek words can mean a lot of different things, and, and we translate them. You know, translators make a decision to say, okay, we're going to use this word here. So in 1 Timothy 2.11, it says, let a woman learn in silence. That's that Greek word, hesuchia. But in 1 Timothy 2.2, just nine verses earlier, that same word is used, and it says this, that we may lead a quiet life, a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That's the same word, hesuchia. So sometimes the New Testament translates it quiet, in the other words, sometimes it translates it silence. But, but the word has this idea, the tone of the word has this idea of quietness. Okay, It, it means, when he says we are to leave a quiet life, it means we're not to be uh, cantankerous or we're not to be uh, anti-this, we're to be untroubled, we're to be serene, we're to be content. So, so when Paul says let a woman stay in silence, I, I don't think that word means there to be completely silent. I mean, that makes no sense at all, right? It's more like what you and I today would call quietness. Now, the next verse, I want you to read this. You see this again in verse 12. Watch what Paul says. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, but to be in silence. And there's that word again, hasutia. Now, notice the opposite. What is the opposite of being in silence? teaching or having authority over a man. Notice that. He says, but to be in silence. So the opposite there of to be in silence or to be, to be quiet is to teach and have authority over a man. Again, it's the exact same word, but here Paul is very clear by what he means about a woman being silent. The opposite of, 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 of that is teaching or having of exercising authority over a man. You see, everybody gets called up in these verses. When they see words like quiet or silent, they all get caught up in this argument about, well, can a woman say anything? Or can she say this? Or can she say that? Or can she do this? Or can she, she do that? But the whole point of that passage is about a woman being submit in submission. That's the whole point of the passage. And you may say, well, what does submission mean? By, he means that the whole point of that is that a woman should respect and honor and support the authority of the men that God has called to oversee the church. That's the whole point of that, of that passage, that she shouldn't teach or have authority over men in, in the body of Christ. And by not speaking in a way that compromises that authority, that's the whole point of that passage. He goes on down. Let's read that again. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, one of the questions we get asked a lot is, how, how, uh, how extensive is this prohibition? Does that mean that a woman can't teach any class? Does that mean that she can't teach anything? Um, is that what he, what he means by that? Well, to answer this, one thing we can do is look at other scriptures. By the way, we always say this. You never take one scripture and pull it out and build a doctrine on it. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. You look at all of Scripture to see what it says. So we can look at other places where Paul talks about women teaching. For example, in Titus, Paul writes this, "...the older women likewise, they be, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to too much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their, their children." Well, he's saying right there that women can be teachers of good things. It specifically, he talks here about the area of teaching younger women, admonishing younger women, exhorting 
younger women. In, first, in 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes to Timothy and says this, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And then later, a couple chapters later, Paul says this, talking to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, who do you think equated Timothy with Scripture? Who is the first person in a, in a, in a young man's life that equates, author, equates uh, or uh, acquaints them with Scripture, that teaches them Scripture? It's their mother, right? That from the very beginning, from, from reading or singing, it's, it's always a mother that influences that child early on. In Acts 18, watch this one. Paul says, um, this is Luke writing. Paul, Luke says, Now a Jew named Apollos was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, although he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla, and Priscilla is a, she's a woman, and her husband Aquila heard him, they took him aside. Look at the word they. Means what? Both of them took him aside and explained to him or taught him the way of God more accurately. Okay? So it doesn't seem, when you look at some of these scriptures, it doesn't seem that every kind of teaching is forbidden to women. There are examples of them teaching other women. There's an example of them teaching children. And there's even an example of them in partnership with their husband giving instruction to, to a man, off, kind of off to the side. Okay? So what does Paul mean when he says, I do not permit a, a woman to teach? Well, I think he said it pretty clearly. You need to understand there, when he says, I, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, what he's saying is, I do not permit a woman to teach a man or to have authority over a man. In other words, he's not just saying a blanket, I don't permit her to teach. He's saying, I don't permit her to teach a man. Okay? Now, so... What we see here is teach and exercise authority go, go together. So there's at least one general thing we can say about women teaching is that it forbids it when it is part of an exercise of authority over men. Okay? For example, I do not think that it would be proper for a woman to teach this class. Because in teaching this class, she would be, exer she would be teaching who? She'd be teaching men. And I just don't think the Bible permits that. And we'll talk about that as we move through here. So one other thing, when he says exercise authority, what does he mean by that? Okay, well, Listen, let's talk about elders for just a second in the church. Titus 1, 5 through 9. And by the way, I, would, I won't put the whole thing here on elders, but I would, it, I would encourage you to go back and read that, what an elder is supposed to do. What are the, what are the, uh, uh, the qualifications of an elder? But he, he writes to Titus and says, Appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach. First of all, an elder has to be a man. That's clear in the Bible. Okay? Elders are men. I, I read the other day, somebody told me about, and I love this, somebody told me about a, um, a church where when they, if, if, when they, before they appoint an elder, they put an advertisement in the newspaper. And they asked, does anybody have anything against this man? Because see, it says, if any man is what? Above reproach. And I thought, well, that's the most awesome thing I ever heard. 
That, does anybody have anything against this man? Because that man is to be above reproach. Above reproach. The husband of one wife, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. You see, one of the things we talk when we talk about elders, those who are in authority in the church, we find out they must be men. Not only that, they must be able to teach. They should be able to exhort and admonish. They should be so familiar with Scripture that they should be able to exhort and admonish those underneath them. Okay? See, elders rule or govern, and elders teach and preach. That's what elders do. So when Paul says he doesn't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men, he's saying, in essence, I do not permit a woman to fulfill the office of an elder. Okay? And we, don't, we, we adhere to that. We believe elders are supposed to be men. By the way, understand, if you've got questions about this, there's a difference. We've, we've kind of blurred the difference, but in the Bible there's a difference between an elder and a deacon. Okay? Today we call deacons in some churches, and they, we kind of, we've kind of blurred that line. But in the original Scripture, a deacon, the word deacon means servant. Women can be, there are, there are examples of deaconesses all over the Bible. Women, they can be deacons. But the Bible says elders, those who are primarily responsible for shepherding the body, teaching the body, uh, uh, preaching to the body, those should be men. Okay? Um, now, by the way, this doesn't just mean, when Paul says this, that women can't be elders, that we can't elect them to elders or appoint them elders. They also cannot participate in activities which are biblically the domain of elders. In other words, just because we don't call her an elder still doesn't mean she can come over here and do the things that elders do. Is that everybody with me? That's, that's what he's saying there. And that primarily means shepherding, teaching, and preaching. Okay? I, 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 and, and again, I'm digging a hole for myself. All right. Now, you may ask why. Why? Again, guys, remember the big picture. Remember the big picture. Because in your marriage, a woman is supposed to represent the bride of Christ. The man is supposed to represent Jesus. Well, Paul says it's the same in the church. Why would I do that in marriage and flip-flop it in the church? In the church, men are supposed to be the ones in authority. They're supposed to be representing Jesus, servant leadership. Women are supposed to be playing the complementary roles or acting the complementary roles, the bride of Christ. It's the same there. Again, I go back to what Paul says. Why would he say all that? Because Adam was formed first and then Eve. He's saying because that's how God designed it from the very beginning. He created Adam and then he created a helpmate. He created somebody complementary to Adam. And it's that way, again, he's saying it, not just in your marriage, but also in the body of Christ, in the church. We're still representing that original design. Let me say this, for any of y'all, any women here that get offended, let me say this. For a person, a man or a woman, by the way, if you've got a heart to serve or a heart to minister, let me tell you, the opportunities are endless. Don't, don't get offended because you're, you're cut out of these couple of things. Let me tell you, there are thousands of ways for a woman or any man to minister. You see, God intends, incredibly intends for this whole body men, women, to be actively involved. And he doesn't want anybody sitting on the sideline while the world burns. 
he expects all of us to be to be ministering in some form or some fashion. It's just that in the church, when it comes to the office and the activities of elders, shepherding, teaching, and preaching, he says, I do not permit a woman to do those things because it flip-flops God's original design. He says, don't do that. I've, I've got to, I, I have fitted men in such a, in such a way that they are, they are equipped for that role. And I've fitted women in such a way that they are equipped to support that role. And when you flip-flop them, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Go to a church. I'm just going to say this, and I'll get in trouble. But if you go to a church and there's a woman pastor, there's something wrong. I'm sorry, but there's something wrong. It is out of place. It's flip-flop from, from God's uh, design. Now, with all that said, if I hadn't dug the hole deep enough, let's come to today's passage. Let's read it again, those first few verses. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, let's look at that word speaking. Let's back up for just a second. We got several indications in the New Testament that women can speak in church. Okay, so I don't think this is at all saying they can't, that you've got to come in and put tape. We're not going to pass out duct tape at the door and women duct tape their mouths. We're not going to do anything like that. Acts 2.17, on the day of Pentecost, it said this, In the last days it shall be, God declares, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Okay? Acts 2.8.9, we entered the house of Philip. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. 1 Corinthians 11.5, we studied this several weeks ago. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers dishonors her head. He's, if you go back and read chapter 11, he's clearly talking about a public assembly. And we, we covered all this several weeks ago. I want you to, first of all, notice, go back to the verse and notice the opposite of speaking. Paul usually, if you'll let him, he'll tell you what he means. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but... What are they, what's the opposite of speaking in this case? They should be in submission, as the law also says. Okay, That's the opposite of speaking in this case, is to be in submission. So the problem, I don't think or believe, is, the, is that they were speaking per se. Paul's not just saying, hey, you got a woman talking in church, that's a, that's a big problem. Right? You just don't do that. You've got to be completely silent. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think what he's saying here is the problem is not that they were speaking, but they were doing it in a way that wasn't submissive. That's what he says. You shouldn't speak, but be in submission. Okay? So what were they doing wrong? Let, let's ask ourselves this question. What were they doing wrong? If you read the full passage, and you have to read everything... It seems there are specific reasons that Paul is addressing this issue with women. First, he says, and look at it, their, their speaking seems to come out of a desire to learn. Does everybody see that in your scripture? It says, if you desire to learn, let your, ask, your, ask your husband at, at, at home. Okay? Read it again. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. If there is anything they want to learn... If you desire to learn something, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So evidently, if you put all that together, evidently what they were doing is they were asking questions in an attempt to gain knowledge and insight. By the way, which is great, 
There's nothing wrong with that, is there? There's nothing wrong with any of us asking questions to learn. But then Paul says, but if you want to learn, you, need, you must wait and ask your husbands at, at home. Now, here's the question. Why would it be inappropriate for women in a church meeting, by the way, Paul says, he said earlier, when you come together, he's talking about a public meeting, why would it be inappropriate for women in a church meeting to ask questions in pursuit of knowledge? Okay? Well, I think Paul answers this question for us. And he does it in the very last verse. And he gives us what I would call a major reason and a minor reason for it to be... Remember, what I'm asking here is, why would it be inappropriate in a meeting like this today if a woman has a question, why would it be inappropriate for her to ask that question? Okay, what would be inappropriate about it? Again, I think Paul answers that question. In 1 Corinthians 14, 40, Paul says this, all things, okay, which would include the asking of questions, right? All things should be done decently, and I think that is a major reason, and all things should be in, done in order. That would be a, what I would call a minor reason. Let's look at the minor reason first. Remember, do you remember the entire reason for this passage, this chapter 14 is, is there's disorder in the church, isn't it? People are prophesying, people are speaking in tongues, there's just mass chaos going on. The whole chapter 14 is about disorder in the church. Things aren't being done in an orderly manner. manner. That, that's the whole point of this whole chapter. And by the way, when he's talking about women, he's not changed the subject. He's still talking about order in the, in the church. So evidently, in some way, women were asking questions in a way that was out of order. Now remember, keep in mind, we've got to go back. In that day, for the most part, women were not educated. They were, probably when they went out to a public assembly like a church, that was one of the very few types of public assemblies they even went to. They just did they were not experienced in that. They didn't know how things worked. But by the way, I don't think the men did either because they were all going crazy and doing all kinds of, it was just mass chaos, right? So that may well have contributed um, to the problems in the church. So I don't think one of the reasons, I don't think it was so much that they were asking questions, but it was the manner they were asking them. They were asking them out of order. They weren't wait to the proper time. They would just, hey, I got a question. Or they would turn to somebody beside them and just be talking. And you can, you can see that, right? You got three people over there speaking in tongues, four people over there prophesying. If it's so loud, I'll just turn and start asking, hey, what do you think? Are you with me? There was some kind of disorder going on here. They were doing it in a way that contributed to the service being out of order and they were, they were disturbing the service. By the way, can we say the same thing is true today? Is there anything more aggravating to a speaker when he looks out and people are whispering to one another and talking to one another? That's just, that's not orderly, is it? I don't think it was any different then. Paul says if you're going to talk, you got to do it in order. Prophesying tongues, asking questions, there's an orderly way to do it. There's a right way to do it. Don't just, you can't have mass chaos, okay? So, so remember, women are uneducated. They're coming into these services. They got questions. Paul's just saying, look, you can't just ask a question anytime. There's a proper way to, to do it. So at a minimum, Paul wants women as well as men to wait until a proper time to ask those questions. Don't do it in a way that disturbs the service. Let things be done in order. Now, here's the major reason, and we're going to come back to the big picture. Paul says, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, this is my question. 
Why would it be shameful or indecent? Remember, Paul said, let everything be done decently. The word decently means according to decorum. It means according to the accepted way, the right way to do things. So why would it be not the right way to do things for women to ask questions of other people other than her husband? Right? See, Paul says, if you've got a question, wait. Now go ask your husband, because that's the way it ought to be done. That's the, the proper decorum. That's the decent way. That's the right way to do it. Remember the big picture. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... That's my pretty little wife here. So I'm going to do an example here. Let's just say this morning that Kathy has a question in church. Something happens and she's got a question. And she decides, let's just say she waits till after the service, and she goes and looks over at Brother Bill and says, I'm going to go ask Brother Bill. And she goes over and asks Brother Bill that question. Now, folks, I want to, we got a problem. We got a problem. Anybody want to know what that problem is? See, let me tell you, in that day, there may have been something culturally wrong with a woman talking to another man. I, I get that. But this isn't all cultural. Because remember the big picture. Our marriage, I should be representing Christ. I should have the answers to her questions. She should be able to come to me as the bride of Christ to her husband and get what she needs. And if she's sitting there and she doesn't trust me, or she doesn't respect me enough to ask me the question where she has to go to another man, something is wrong with our marriage and something is wrong with the big picture. I'm not representing who I need to be in my marriage. Do you get that? That Paul says, that's a shame. That is a shame. Let me tell you, if she has to go to another man to get her question answered, shame on me. Shame on me. You see, I, I, you, you cannot take these scriptures and just pull them out and say, my, you know, this is so old-fashioned. No, folks. There's a big picture going on here. And what Paul wants us to do as we read all these scriptures, he says, in your marriage, don't forget the mystery is profound. Men, you represent Christ. You represent Christ. Women, you are to submit to your husband as you submit to Christ as the church would do. Let me ask you a question. How would it look if we had a question about something and we went to, we went to Muhammad? How would that look? Or we went to Buddha? How would that look? That's the same thing. That's what it looks like when a woman has to go somewhere else to get her questions answered as opposed to going to her husband. It's like saying the church can't go to Jesus. It's a big deal, guys. It is a big, big deal, okay? And I hope, with that said, I dug myself out of that. I dug myself out of that hole. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for chapter 14 as we come to the end of it.